Welcome to Bible in a Year with Bill. My name is Bill, and I'm your message messenger as we make our way through the message paraphrase of the Holy Bible, written by Eugene Peterson. Good day to you all. It's February 16th, and we are on day 46 of our journey through the Bible, through the message. Today we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 16 to chapter 18, and then we're going to finish off today's reading by jumping over to Proverbs chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. So let's get right into it with Acts chapter 16. Paul came first to Derbe, then Lystra. He found a disciple there by the name of Timothy, son of a devout Jewish mother and Greek father. Friends in Lystra and Iconium all said what a fine young man he was. Paul wanted to recruit him for their mission, but first took him aside and circumcised him so he wouldn't offend the Jews who lived in these parts. They all knew that his father was Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they presented the simple guidelines the Jerusalem apostles and leaders had come up with. That turned out to be most helpful. Day after day, the congregations became stronger in faith and larger in size. They went to Phrygia, and then on through the province of Galatia. Their plan was to turn west into Asia province, but the Holy Spirit blocked that route. So they went to Mycenae and tried to go north to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go there either. Proceeding on through Mysia, they went down to the seaport Troas. That night Paul had a dream. A Macedonian stood on the far shore and called across the sea. Come over to Macedonia and help us. The dream gave Paul his map. We went to work at once, getting things ready to cross over to Macedonia. All the pieces had come together. We knew now for sure that God had called us to preach the good news to the Europeans. Putting out from the harbor at Troas, we made a straight run for Samothrace. The next day we tied up at New City and walked from there to Philippi, the main city in that part of Macedonia and, even more importantly, a Roman colony. We lingered there several days. On the Sabbath we left the city and went down along the river where we had heard there was to be a prayer meeting. We took our place with the women who had gathered there and talked with them. One woman, Lydia, was from Thyatira and a dealer in expensive textiles, known to be a God-fearing woman. As she listened with intensity to what was being said, the master gave her a trusting heart, and she believed. After she was baptized, along with everyone in her household, she said in a surge of hospitality, If you're confident that I'm in this with you and believe in the master truly, come home with me and be my guests. We hesitated, but she wouldn't take no for an answer. One day, on our way to the place of prayer, a slave girl ran into us. She was psychic and with her fortune-telling made a lot of money for the people who owned her. She started following Paul around, calling everyone's attention to us by yelling out, These men are working for the Most High God! They're laying out the road of salvation for you! She did this for a number of days until Paul, finally fed up with her, turned and commanded the spirit that possessed her, Out! In the name of Jesus Christ, get out of her! And it was gone, just like that. When her owners saw that their lucrative little business was suddenly bankrupt, they went after Paul and Silas, roughed them up, and dragged them into the market square. Then the police arrested them and pulled them into a court with the accusation, These men are disturbing the peace! Dangerous Jewish agitators subverting our Roman law and order! 
By this time the crowd had turned into a restless mob out for blood. The judges went along with the mob, had Paul and Silas's clothes ripped off and ordered a public beating. After beating them black and blue, they threw them into jail, telling the jailkeeper to put them under heavy guard so there'd be no chance of escape. He did just that, threw them into the maximum security cell in the jail and clamped leg irons on them. Along about midnight, Paul and Silas were at prayer and singing a robust hymn to God. The other prisoners couldn't believe their ears. Then, without warning, a huge earthquake. The jailhouse tottered. Every door flew open. All the prisoners were loose. Startled from sleep, the jailer saw all the doors swinging loose on their hinges. Assuming that all the prisoners had escaped, he pulled out his sword and was about to do himself in, figuring he was as good as dead anyway. When Paul stopped him, Don't do that. We're all still here. Nobody's run away. The jailer got a torch and ran inside. Badly shaken, he collapsed in front of Paul and Silas. He led them out of the jail and asked, Sirs, what do I have to do to be saved, to really live? They said, Put your entire trust in the Master Jesus. Then you'll live as you were meant to live, and everyone in your house included. They went on to spell out in detail the story of the Master. The entire family got in on this part. They never did get to bed that night. The jailer made them feel at home, dressed their wounds, and then, he couldn't wait till morning, was baptized, he and everyone in his family. There in his home, he had food set out for a festive meal. It was a night to remember. He and his entire family had put their trust in God. Everyone in the house was in on the celebration. At daybreak, the court judges sent officers with the instructions, Release these men! The jailer gave Paul the message. The judges sent word that you're free to go on your way. Congratulations, go in peace. But Paul wouldn't budge. He told the officers, they beat us up in public and threw us in jail. Roman citizens in good standing. And now they want to get us out of the way on the sly without anyone knowing? Nothing doing. If they want us out of here, let them come themselves and lead us out in broad daylight. When the officers reported this, the judges panicked. They had no idea that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They hurried over and apologized, personally escorted them from the jail, and then asked them if they wouldn't please leave the city. Walking out of the jail, Paul and Silas went straight to Lydia's house, saw their friends again, encouraged them in the faith, and only then went on their way. Acts chapter 17 they took the road south through Amphipolis and Apollonia to Thessalonica, where there was a community of Jews. Paul went to their meeting place as he usually did when he came to a town, and for three Sabbaths running he preached to them from the scriptures. He opened up the texts so they understood what they'd been reading all their lives, that the Messiah absolutely had to be put to death and raised from the dead. There were no other options, and that this Jesus I'm introducing to you is that Messiah. Some of them were won over and joined ranks with Paul and Silas, among them a great many God-fearing Greeks and a considerable number of women from the aristocracy. But the hard-line Jews became furious over the conversions. Mad with jealousy, they rounded up a bunch of brawlers off the streets and soon had an ugly mob terrorizing the city as they hunted down Paul and Silas. They broke into Jason's house, thinking that Paul and Silas were there. When they couldn't find them, they collared Jason and his friends instead and dragged them before the city fathers, yelling hysterically. 
These people are out to destroy the world, and now they've shown up on our doorstep, attacking everything we hold dear. And Jason is hiding them, these traitors and turncoats who say Jesus is king and Caesar is nothing. The city fathers and the crowd of people were totally alarmed by what they heard. They made Jason and his friends post heavy bail and let them go while they investigated the charges. That night, under cover of darkness, their friends got Paul and Silas out of town as fast as they could. They sent them to Berea, where they again met with the Jewish community. They were treated a lot better there than in Thessalonica. The Jews received Paul's message with enthusiasm and met with him daily, examining the scriptures to see if they supported what he said. A lot of them became believers, including many Greeks who were prominent in the community, women and men of influence. But it wasn't long before reports got back to the Thessalonian hardline Jews that Paul was at it again, preaching the word of God, this time in Berea. They lost no time responding and created a mob scene there too. With the help of his friends, Paul gave them the slip, caught a boat and put out to sea. Silas and Timothy stayed behind. The men who helped Paul escape got him as far as Athens and left him there. Paul sent word back with them to Silas and Timothy, Come as quickly as you can. The longer Paul waited in Athens for Silas and Timothy, the angrier he got. All those idols. The city was a junkyard of idols. He discussed it with the Jews and other like-minded people at their meeting place. And every day he went out on the streets and talked with anyone who happened along. He got to know some of the Epicurean and Stoic intellects pretty well through these conversations. Some of them dismissed him with sarcasm. What an airhead! But others, listening to him go on about Jesus and the resurrection, were intrigued. That's a new slant on the gods. Tell us more. These people got together and asked him to make a public presentation over at the Areopagus, where things were a little quieter. They said, this is a new one on us. We've never heard anything quite like it. Where did you come up with this anyway? Explain it so we can understand. Downtown Athens was a great place for gossip. There were always people hanging around, natives and tourists alike, waiting for the latest tidbit, tidbit on most anything. So Paul took his stand in the open space at the Areopagus and laid it out for them. It is plain to see that you Athenians take your religion seriously. When I arrived here the other day, I was fascinated with all the shrines I came across, and then I found one inscribed, To the God Nobody Knows. I'm here to introduce you to this God so you can worship intelligently, knowing who you're dealing with. The God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land, doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him, as if he couldn't take care of himself. He makes the creatures. The creatures don't make him. Starting from scratch, he made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living so we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide-and-seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in Him. Can't get away from Him. One of your poets said it well. We're the God created. Well, if we are the God created, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think we could hire a sculptor to chisel out a god of stone for us, does it? God overlooks it as long as you don't know any better. But that time is past. 
The unknown is now known, and he's calling for a radical life change. He has set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything set right, and he has already appointed the judge, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead. At that phrase, raising him from the dead, the listeners split. Some laughed at him and walked off making jokes. Others said, let's do this again. We want to hear more. But that was it for the day, and Paul left. There were still others, it turned out, who were convinced then and there and stuck with Paul, among them Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris. Acts chapter 18 After Athens, Paul went to Corinth. That is where he discovered Aquila, a Jew born in a Jew born in Pontus, and his wife, Priscilla. They had just arrived from Italy, part of the general expulsion of Jews from Rome ordered by Claudius. Paul moved in with them, and they worked together at their common trade of tent-making. But every Sabbath he was at the meeting place doing his best to convince both Jews and Greeks about Jesus. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was able to give all his time to preaching and teaching, doing everything he could to persuade the Jews that Jesus was, in fact, God's Messiah. But no such luck. All they did was argue contentiously and contradict him at every turn. Totally exasperated, Paul had finally had it with them and gave it up as a bad job. Have it your way then, he said. You've made your bed, now lie in it. From now on I'm spending my time with the other nations. He walked out and went to the home of Titus, Justus a God-fearing man who lived right next to the Jews' meeting place. But Paul's efforts with the Jews weren't a total loss for Crispus. The meeting place president put his trust in the master. His entire family believed in him. In the course of listening to Paul, a great many Corinthians believed and were baptized. One night, the master spoke to Paul in a dream. Keep it up and don't let anyone intimidate or silence you. No matter what happens, I'm with you and no one is going to be able to hurt you. You have no idea how many people I have on my side in this city. That was all he needed to stick it out. He stayed another year and a half, faithfully teaching the word of God to the Corinthians. But when Gallio was governor of Achaia province, the Jews got up a campaign against Paul, hauled him into court, and filed charges. This man is seducing people into acts of worship that are illegal. Just as Paul was about to defend himself, Gallio interrupted and said to the Jews, If this was a matter of criminal conduct, I would gladly hear you out. But it sounds to me like one more Jewish squabble, another of your endless hair-splitting quarrels over religion. Take care of it on your own time. I can't be bothered with this nonsense. And he cleared them out of the courtroom. Now the street rabble turned on Sosthenes, the new meeting place president, and beat him up in plain sight of the court. Gallio didn't raise a finger. He could not have cared less. Paul stayed, stayed a while longer in Corinth, but then it was time to take leave of his friends. Saying his goodbyes, he sailed for Syria. Priscilla and Aquila went with him. Before boarding the ship in the harbor town of Centria, he had his head shaved as part of a vow he had taken. They landed in Ephesus, where Priscilla and Aquila got off and stayed. Paul left the ship briefly to go to the meeting place and preach to the Jews. They wanted him to stay longer, but he said he couldn't. But after saying goodbye, he promised, I'll be back, God willing. 
From Ephesus he sailed to Caesarea. He greeted the church there and then went on to Antioch, completing the journey. After spending a considerable time with the Antioch Christians, Paul set off again for Galatia and Phrygia, rechasing his old steps. One town after another, putting fresh heart into the disciples. A man named Apollos came to Ephesus. He was a Jew, born in Alexandria, Egypt, and a terrific speaker, eloquent and powerful in his preaching of the Scriptures. He was well-educated in the way of the Master and fiery in his enthusiasm. Apollos was accurate in everything he taught about Jesus up to a point, but he only went as far as the baptism of John. He preached with power in the meeting place. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and told him the rest of the story. When Apollos decided to go on to Achaia province, his Ephesian friends gave their blessing and wrote a letter of recommendation for him, urging the disciples there to welcome him with open arms. The welcome paid off. Apollos turned out to be a great help to those who had become believers through God's immense generosity. He was particularly effective in public debate with the Jews as he brought out proof after convincing proof from the scriptures that Jesus was, in fact, God's Messiah. Proverbs chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. If you love learning, you love the discipline that goes with it. How short-sighted to refuse correction! A good person basks in the delight of God, and he wants nothing to do with devious schemers. You can't find firm footing in a swamp, but life rooted in God stands firm. A hardy wife invigorates her husband, but a frigid woman is cancer in the bones. The thinking of principled people makes for justice. The plots of degenerates corrupt. The words of the wicked kill, the speech of the upright saves. Wicked people fall to pieces, there's nothing to them. The homes of good people hold together. A person who talks sense is honored, airheads are held in contempt. Better to be ordinary and work for a living than act important and starve in the process. Good people are good to their animals, the good-hearted bad people kick and abuse them. The one who stays on the job has food on the table. The witless chase whims and fancies. What the wicked construct finally falls into ruin, while the roots of the righteous give life, and more life. The gossip of bad people gets them in trouble. The conversation of good people keeps them out of it. Well-spoken words bring satisfaction. Well-done work has its own reward. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless this reading today. I pray, Lord, that any ears who need to hear this reading would somehow find a way to hear it. Thank you, Lord. How do we develop character? I believe most of a person's character is developed as a child. It's the result of values learned from family and other significant people early in life, which is, much, which is what makes our role as parents and the role of those who coach kids so important. We also develop character by going through adversity. 
In the book of Acts, Paul and the other apostles went through some pretty serious adversity. In one town, they would be welcomed with open arms, but in the very next town, they would be severely beaten and thrown into jail. Talk about character building. Coaches of sports teams sometimes talk about a losing year being a character building season. If any of you out there are hockey fans, then you'll have to agree with me that the Oilers and the Maple Leafs sure must have a lot of character. (laughs) Uh, But seriously, the pandemic that has taken over our world in the last year is also a perfect example of character building. It has really forced a great many of us to stop and reevaluate how we do life. In Romans 5, Paul says, We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Yet the truth remains that most of our character is established early in life. Adversity can help build it. Coaches can help mold it. Circumstances can help refine it. But in our adult years, the only thing I've seen that can radically change a person's basic character is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Bible in a Year with Bill is a daily journey into the message paraphrase of the Bible. Each day we look at a section of either an Old or New Testament book and a short section of one of the more poetic books. If you enjoy what we're doing here, like and subscribe to the podcast. You can also follow me on Facebook or Instagram. Feel free to drop me a line at bibleinayearwithbill at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I will see you tomorrow.